listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. It tripped me out that I was waiting on you while you were singing, I will wait on you. Just in the back, I'm like, I will wait on you. It'd be more awkward if I didn't. Uh, we'll actually read um, what, what Paul and the guys we're just uh, singing in just a minute. Um, and as we get started, let me just say this. I feel uh, two things, really. Um, I'm going to be talking today about honesty. Uh, and by the way, if you're a visitor, I'm Will Hawk. I, I typically work with the high school, middle school, and the kids' church age. Uh, Brad will be back next week, so get excited about that. Talked to him yesterday. He's excited to be here. Um, actually, he'll be back tomorrow morning. And so blow up his phone. Feel free. He's had a month off. Just send him every email. Any thought you've had over the past month, just light him up. Um, and so the, I can't remember what I was saying. Oh, that's who I am. Okay, the two things that I'm feeling, if I'm being completely honest with you, are this. One, I feel like I've been writing this sermon for about three weeks. Um, and I didn't realize that until a couple days ago. Um, and, and so what happened if I can just lay the groundwork? And then the other thing is I feel completely exhausted right now. Um, but on the three-week thing, I'm just being honest, right? Uh, Reynolds walked up to me at the carnival yesterday, and he was like, Hawke, I, I, I don't remember exactly what he said. He said something like, I bet you're looking forward to money or, or whatever, looking forward to whatever your next break is. I was like, yeah, man, I'm tired. But then it's coming from a guy who, like, runs across states. And so, like, he has no understanding like, I, I'm a pretty energetic guy, but I don't run across Georgia. And so he's like, man, you're, you're just at the point where you just got to grab that Powerade, pop it, push through. You're going to be in good shape. And I'm like, dude, I haven't run a mile. And like, my energy is a completely different type of energy. And so, so anyway, I, I feel like I've been working on this because uh, about three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, something that I've been praying for and really thought that I heard God say, this is it, this is the direction, here's what it's going to look like. And I was praying in that direction, and with faith, it just looks like it might be crumbling around me. It looked like actually it had completely crumbled. And, and so I, I went to my mirror, and I wrote, trust in him at all times, O people. And, and, and there was more to that verse, and I put the right, but I, for, I, that's all I was keying in on was that first part of that verse. And so the next week we had our, our youth retreat, and on that retreat, uh, I sat down with Luke, one of our students who's in college at Dartmouth, and he was talking to me about prayer, and he was like, well, there are just so many things I don't get about prayer. Can you help me with this? And we talked about it on the retreat on the way home. We looked at Psalms 109, where David's prayer is just him being brutally, absolutely raw, honest with God. And we were talking about that. In fact, before we even left, I was talking about that same scripture with Adam for lunch because we have a similar thing going on where we're both just frustrated about something. And, and then next thing I know, we're, we're on that and God's saying, okay, be honest here with me as I'm talking with Adam. And he's saying when I'm talking with Luke about prayer, be honest with me here. I get up to school. Uh, Robert and I were at school last week. Um, and it opens uh, our professor who, okay, subnote. This was so cool to me. The guy who was my professor is the guy who wrote the study notes in the ESV Bible under Jonah. And I was like, that's just crazy. Like, you're not going to get in the book, but that kind of counts as getting in the book. So anyway, back to my story. He, he opens with Psalms 116, which is what I preached on at the beginning of the month, if you remember. And then he starts highlighting Psalms 
13, which is what the guys just sung. And, and, and to wrap this whole thing out, so I, I'm talking with God and I'm asking him, you know, I don't just want to show up and preach what I want to preach. I want to preach what you want me to preach. And so I'm like, you know, what is it? And, and it was just obvious that day after day after day, week after week, God had been training me and growing me and understanding what honest prayer to God is. So I get home. I get home from uh, whatever the last thing was. Um, from school, I think. I get home from school. And it's been a week and a half since I've been in my house. And I go in my bathroom to brush my teeth. And I look. And the verse says, trust in him at, o time, at all times. O people, pour out your heart to God. Psalm 62. The psalm that God had put on my heart on the way here was the one that he had put on my mirror four, four weeks ago, and I'd completely forgotten about it because I didn't memorize the thing. And so I'm sitting here, and I'm like, well, this is just great. God, you wrote the sermon for me. All I have to do is preach, and really, that's the whole truth anyway. And then as, as I'm being honest uh, in prayer, I'm exhausted, and I am covered. And I know a lot of people say from head to toe, and they're being kind of met. I am covered from head to toe in poison oak right now. If, if I was wearing a t-shirt and shorts, I would look like the pink calamine lotion from the swamps. I am absolutely, so if anybody does need prayer and the laying on of hands, might I recommend somebody else this morning? If you're like, oh my gosh, I got to get prayer, I'll pray with you, but I, I'm just, heads up, forewarning, I'm covered in poison oak. And so, all that to say, I, I love that my job is, com is completely dependent on God. I, I think all of our lives should be. But it is so good not to have to be at your best, at your peak, because everything rests on him anyway. Everything rests on his word anyway. So I just want to be faithful to it. And so here's what we're going to do. Go ahead in your Bibles, if you would, turn to Psalm 62. Um, I, I, you know what? I forgot to look in the Pew Bible and see what number that is. So whoever finds it first, you can holler that out. But Psalm 62, and what I would like to do before we kind of read through it, is I just want to pray through it. Um, and I'm giving you this kind of as a forewarning because if I don't, there would be a, a couple moments of awkwardness, all right? And so I'm trying to save you from that because twice in this psalm, it says, soul, just be silent. In other words, quit worrying, tr quit trying to make sense of everything, let your mind chill out, let everything just calm down. Soul, just be still, be quiet, and listen for the Lord. And so I recognize that all of us come into this place in very different ways. Some of us are pumped and excited to be here. Some of us didn't get our donut, and that just ruined our morning, right? And, and so we're, we're thinking about what's going to happen next and what's going on and et cetera and so on. And so as I pray through this, wh when I'm silent, I want that to be a time for you personally just to pray to God. Here's where I am. Here's where I'm at, God. I'm here on Sunday morning, but I don't want to be here. Or I'm here on Sunday morning and I'm pumped about it. So God, give me what you have or anything in between. God, I can't get this out of my mind. I can't get this thought out. I'm struggling with this. I need to repent of this. Do it in those couple of moments. So let's go ahead and pray. Psalm 62. <clears throat> For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. 
I shall not be greatly shaken. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. God, on you rests my salvation. On you rests my glory. You're my mighty rock. You are my refuge. So, Father, at all times and for all people, I pray that we would trust in you. And that we would recognize that in trusting in you, we can be completely, absolutely, without reservation, free to pour out our heart before you. Because you are a refuge for us. And so, Father, I, I, I just pray that over us this morning. If there's nothing else that, that we gain from working through your word today, I pray that we would realize that our God is a God who is intimately acquainted with all our ways, who knows a word before it's even on our tongue, who has numbered the hairs on our head, who knit us together in our mother's womb. You know us better than we know ourselves. And so, Father, in that truth, and because of what Christ has done, we can be absolutely, unreservedly honest with you about where we are, both in times of difficulty and in times of joy, both in times of frustration and anxiety and perplexion and times when it just seems like everything is lining up and the world is as it should be. Father, wherever we are in the entire spectrum of human emotion, that is where we need to be when we pray. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people who worry not about what others think, who worry not about the exact words that we use or, or if it makes sense to everyone or when we pray and talk with you, if it sounds right or not. God, I just pray that we would humbly open our hearts and pour ourselves out and break ourselves, that we would be honest and bare before you. And Father, this, my other prayer, God, is that this would not be some kind of heavy thing, but Father, that this would be for our joy, that this would be in our freedom, that we would not walk through this life exhausted spiritually, Father, but that you would be our joy, that you would be our shield, that you would be our fortress, that you would be our sufficiency. And so, Father, I pray that for us this morning. As we open up your word, as we work through it, God, that you would be our sufficiency from syllable to syllable, from thought to thought, and that you would carry us from this place in a way that we love you so intently and trust you so explicitly that we live absolutely abandoned for your kingdom. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Okay, so here's what I'd like to do. Psalm 62 is where we're going to start. And if you've turned there in your Bible, go ahead and start in verse 5. But we're going to jump around a little bit. And so here we have David in Psalm 62. And what he says in 1 and 2 is repeated later. So we're going to pick up in verse 5. And it says this, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in him. So mind, soul, spirit, 
thoughts, anxieties, fears, concerns. Just calm down. Just chill out because my hope is not in me. My trust is not in me. My trust is in God. And since my trust is in God, just wait, be silent, and see what God will do. He continues to build what he's saying here in verse 6. He only, God, you only are my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Now, that's a tough thing for us to say nowadays because it's presuming a lot. If I walked up to you and I said, how is life going right now? And you said, well, things are going well. And I said, tomorrow, will you be able to say I'm not going to be shaken? Most of us say, well, I, I feel pretty strongly about that. What about a year from now? Well, I don't know what might happen in a year. What about three years? What about 10 years? But what the psalmist is saying is this. He's saying, I'm not going to be shaken by the mysteries I can't explain. I told you about Luke, and we were talking about prayer, and he was asking questions. And what he was really saying is, uh, he had a couple, but one of the bigger ones is, explain to me if God is sovereign, how prayer works anyway. Now, that's a tough question, right? I mean, that's a really good, tough question. And, and, and as we're working through it, one of the things I encouraged him with was this. I said, earlier in my walk, I think I came to the Lord when I was around nine, so it's been about 21 years now. Last time I was up here, I said 13. I don't know what was going on. I wasn't thinking, all right? I, I didn't give God credit for eight years of my life. And I feel guilty about that. But I've been walking with the Lord for a little while now. And what I've realized is the things that used to really shake my faith are now serving to strengthen my faith. And it's not because I had the answer to it, necessarily. It, it's because what I've realized is this. If by the time I'm 50, 60, whatever age God chooses to give me, if there are no more mysteries for me to wrestle through, then, and remember, I'm just being honest with you guys, then that God, in my opinion, is not a capital G God. Because if I can understand everything about him, he is not incomprehensible. His ways are not above my ways. His, thought are not, his thoughts are not above my thoughts. And so what this is telling me, I will not be shaken, is he's leaning not on his ability to understand all these mysteries and the things that sometimes we won't know until we're in glory with Christ. But what he's saying is, because I'm leaning on the cross, it doesn't matter if things don't always make sense to me. Because I'm leaning on the cross, it's okay for me to be a little concerned or a little anxious or a little worried. He only is my rock and my salvation. Verse 7 says this, on God rests my salvation and my glory. I love this verse, my mighty rock, my refuge. So everybody look up for one second. On God rests my salvation and my glory. Now, to, to put this in simplified terms, let's say be saved, go to heaven. And what it's saying is this. None of us came to Christ and said, I've kind of got this whole thing figured out, all right? I've got this, but I want salvation, so I'm going to come to you so that if, per se, this whole thing is real, I've got to get out of jail free card from Monopoly that I can put in my back pocket. That's not how we come to him, that we're sinners, and then by God's grace, he rescues us from sin. And there's a point in our existence where we are saved, where salvation hits us. It's a point on our line. And what the psalmist is saying is that point rests on God. It didn't rest on your walking down the aisle, right? It, it, it didn't rest on you being smarter than the next guy. It didn't rest certainly on your morality or your goodness. I think we would all agree with that. If you've been here for three weeks, you either agree with it or you're not here anymore, okay? So, that, I mean, that's just that's what we preach, okay? But what this is saying is, that rests on God, our salvation, but so does our glory. I think we would all pretty much agree with this. None of us are expecting to get to the pearly gates and be like, what's up guys, I'm here. 
I know you've been expecting me. I'm here. I did it. I did it. Now, where's the food? Or whatever it is you're looking forward to. I, I don't know, okay? Maybe it's playing football. Who knows, all right? But my question to you is this. If we trust Christ explicitly in salvation, right? And we trust him explicitly in our glorification. What about this little line in the middle? This little line called your life. Some of us will be longer than others. But are you trusting explicitly on Christ there as well? And that's why he says in verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Because we're living in this really awkward kind of phase. Before we came to Christ, we were sinners. We couldn't do anything good anyway, right? Ultimately, we will be in heaven and be completely perfected. And that kind of makes sense. God's calling me his son. I'm living in perfection. I'm in heaven. That makes sense. But this period in between where, let's be honest, you both have the ability to sin and the ability not to sin, right? And most of us have exercised both of those things today. Okay? Fair enough? And, and so we're at this little awkward place in between where God is calling me his son, but I'm not always acting like his son. Where he's saying, hey, you're my kid, but I'm not always acting like his kid. And so we're at this unique thing. And that's why the psalmist writes, trust in the Lord at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Pour out your heart before him. So here's what I'm going to do today. Here's, here's my goal. I want to convince you that Christ is your assurance, both in salvation and in glorification and everything in the middle. I just want to hit you with verses until everybody here can at least either say, Christ is my assurance, then forever and the in-between, or you're going to say, you know what, I just don't believe Scripture. You'll say one of those two things. And then what I want you to realize is that simple truth leans to this, that because of our assurance in Christ, we are free to be poured out and broken before God. That doesn't sound good. That's not, you don't read that and you're like, oh, well, now I want to smile. Poured out and broken. Now that sounds solid. Good preaching, Will. I'm going to leave. Just hip hopping out of here. I promise you this is a good thing. I promise you this will cause you to leave with a smile on your face and hope in your heart. So don't be dismayed because the word says poured and the word says broken. And then I just want to litter you with a few examples of what that looks like. Okay? So, here is how it breaks out. Trust in God at all times. Psalm 62, verse 8. Pour out your heart before him. Now, this is easy for kids, okay? Trusting in someone is easy for kids. The Bible talks about us having a childlike faith. And so, let me give you an example. I'd say five years ago, maybe eight years ago, I don't know the exact date, but you may have noticed there was a big ramp up in anti-smoking ads. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I don't know the American ones, but they're always bright orange. Y'all know what I'm talking about now? Okay, there was this huge ramp up. And I want to say a year or two ago, there was one in Australia. Okay, there was this anti-smoking ad in Australia, which was actually very controversial because of the way a child was treated in the ad. And here's how it plays out. A mom is holding the hand of her son, who I'm guessing is about five years old. He looks a little bit older than Ellis. Okay, so we'll say four or five years old. And they're walking into a train station. And the camera's keyed in on this little boy, all right? And so you see him holding his mom's hand, but there are hundreds of people walking by. And the next thing you know, the little boy's hand is at his side, and his mom's not there, but he hasn't realized it yet. 
And if you've ever seen this, if you have a child and you've ever seen this, or maybe you've been in the mall and you saw a child just kind of standing there in the middle, what happens next is a series of about nine emotions that go in microseconds. The kid realizes nobody's holding his hand and then immediately begins whipping around. Where's my mom? Then he freezes. And, and his face looks normal. He free, and you see, you see the gears start turning. And he's like, I don't know where my mom is. I don't know where my mom is. Then the next thought, I don't know who any of these people are. Then the next thought, I don't even know where I am. And then you see his face begin to shift down. And his, his bottom lip begins to protrude forward. And he begins crying in the middle of this train station, completely alone, surrounded by the world. You see, the, the reason it was controversial was if you watch the ad and you have a child, it breaks your heart. Because those were his real tears. They staged the entire thing. There were 150 volunteers that were doing it. But they filmed the absolute fear, terror, concern, and perplexing nature of what was happening on the face of this child. Okay? But here's my point in that. Kids have zero problem being dependent on someone else. You want to know why? Because they can't really feed themselves. They can't really take care of themselves. They can't provide shelter. Everything they have was given to them. Not so with us. The most difficult part of any youth trip, I am not trying to get you guys not to participate. I love it when parents participate in youth trips. Okay? Hear that. Underline it. Highlight it in your mind. Please be involved in youth ministry. The most difficult part of any youth trip are the adults that go. I've been, I, I have been a staff pastor with youth for 12 years. I promise you, adults are the most difficult to take on a trip anywhere. One exception, Clara McBride, you get a pass, okay? Because Clara McBride is like my mom whenever we go on trips. Some kid cuts his finger almost off, Ethan Cook. Clara takes him to the hospital, I'm not even worried about it. He also has a bunch of brothers, so his mom was like, eh, it happens, right? Okay? If it's a family with girls, you're more concerned. Family with boys, whatever, okay? But my point is, why is that? Because when I say, hey, guys, we're going to Cracker Barrel, and we get there, and it's way booked, and I'm like, oh, my bad, we're going to have to go to Waffle House. Kids are like, nah, no big deal, whatever. I'm used to being told what to do by this parent and that parent and this teacher who does it differently than this teacher and this coach who does it different than this coach and this pastor. Everybody just kind of tells me what to do, right? So they're like, cool. But you tell a parent that, and they're like, whoa, we were talking about biscuits, and they got that little butter stuff going on. I'm getting reward points right now for Cracker Barrel. I think we should just wait. Plus, we got to load everybody up in the van. And it's just like, it's obvious, right? We have become so independent that being dependent on someone else is foreign to us, even God. Let me drive the point home a little further. When do we lose most of the people who profess Christ. When do they turn away? It's okay to talk. I know that usually I'm the one to do it. When? College, right? That's, that's why I have a job, right? Will, don't screw it up, okay? Counting on you in this. All right, All right okay. Can, can, I, can I make one observation? We're not losing our kids in college because there are atheist professors who are getting pay raises for every Christian who renounces the faith. They're, they're not making notches on their belt. There's probably one, okay? But in general, they're not making notches on their belt. Do you want to know why I think we're losing most of our kids in college? 
it's because it's their first time to be self-dependent. And we have done an exceedingly poor job of modeling dependence on God. So they grow up and they go to school where they pick their job, they pick their roommate, they pick their house, they pick their classes, they pick their future, and then they look at Scripture and they're like, I know I need to be dependent on God, but I mean... I'm really kind of starting to handle this thing on my own. I'm paying my own bills. I'm paying my own cell phone. I'm the one who's making sure things either are running or aren't running. My future's kind of in my hands. And so can I submit to you that it's not just college professors preaching different worldviews. It's students who have never been taught dependence on God and modeled it from their parents who now have the freedom to live in that. And, and, and let me just be, again, we're, I'm being honest. Let me be blatantly honest. It is harder to show dependence on God if you're wealthier. That's just the way that we see this in the rich young ruler. Give everything away. It's harder to do. That does not mean that if you happen to have more financially, you don't have dependence on God. But here's the thing. Your kids may never see you pray, Father, how am I going to pay this bill? How am I going to cover this mortgage? Our car just got totaled and I don't know what I'm going to do. They may never see those prayers. So what they need to see is this. God, I'm praying for this person who's sick. And I can't do anything. In fact, the doctors have said it's hopeless, but I'm depending on you. You see, any of us can do that. And so, just as this little tidbit as we go forward, my encouragement to you, if, especially if your parents or work with young people, is model dependence on God. All right, so let's hop back. Psalm 62, verse 8 says, pour out your heart to God. And that's what I want all of us to do. I love the Old Testament. Um, I feel like sometimes it doesn't get a lot of play uh, in the church today. I mean, you can see it when we buy Bibles that say New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. Ah, the rest you can figure out. Don't worry about it. Um, but, and that just like breaks my heart just a little bit. I love the Old Testament. I don't know Hebrew. I, I, I would like to learn it. But when I saw this word poor, I had to know what it meant. I had to know, because I'm thinking water, you know, pitcher, cup, poor, right? And, and it's not completely far off from that. But when I checked out this word, do you know what it typically was referring to in the Old Testament? You can talk back now. The pouring of anybody? What? Uh, yes, that. A part of it, it's one word starts with a B and we use it all the time. What? Blood. It's typically referring to blood. I'm not trying to gross you out, but the majority of the time we see this word, it's talking about the pouring of blood in the Old Testament. And there are two ways that it's typically being shed or dealt with. One is sacrifice and the other is murder. In other words, Cain and Abel, the, the blood being spilt, the Old Testament's dealing with it in murder and killing. Same thing in sacrifice. When you come to God, you make a sacrifice. Here's how you deal with it. Here's how you deal with the blood. Now, when I look at this, and Psalms is saying, pour out your heart to God, and it's pointing me backwards to sacrifice and murder, do you know what those two things point me to? They point me to the cross of my Savior, who was both a sacrifice and was murdered in the same time at the same place. Acts chapter 2, it says this, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. 
So at the same time, in the same place, we have this mystery that I don't know that we will ever be able to fully understand or explain of how God is completely providential and human responsibility exists in this world, but we even see it on the cross. Because here we have it say, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I had decided this, Adam and Eve screwed it up in the garden, and I was going to make a way for my kids to come back to me. So I decided that I would send my son to a rugged cross to be sacrificed so that your, my wrath could be poured out on him instead of you. But at the same time, these men, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see this? And so when, when this verse is telling me to pour out my heart to God, it shoots me backwards into the Old Testament that it might launch me forward and say, do you remember the blood being poured out for you? Now pour your heart out to me. Our prayers aren't jokes. It's not just something we do. It's not a transition in the sermon. I mean, that's how we treat it as Christians, right? Like, you go to the hospital and... Some, somebody's sick and you meet with them for a little while and now you're like, well, we got to go. Hey, can I pray for you, brother? Because when I say amen, that's just the perfect transition, right? I mean, we treat prayer in the Christian world like our little transition piece. Things get awkward, so we pray. Everybody's got their eyes closed, right? It can't be that awkward. Nobody can see me. In fact, I can even say, guys, let's just pray. I don't even have to say anything. And we use it as this little transition piece when what God is calling us to do is leave all of our little pomp and circumstance, our desire for these things to sound right. How are, how are these people going to perceive me? He says, no, no, no. Just pour it out. Just let it flow. Speak to me with your true, real heart. There's this great little Spurgeon quote. Old school English, okay? So go ahead and put back on your high school English thinking cap, all right? Or college, if you did that. I didn't pay attention in college English. I wouldn't go in there for that. That's why I don't know where to put commas, and there may be a problem in just a minute. All right, here we go. So I'm not kidding. Every time, oh, it's bad. It's bad. Okay. I hate commas. If I could get rid of two things in this world, it'd be commas and this microphone. They are top, definitely top 10 things I hate. All right, so here's Spurgeon. You, Jeremy, you got that? Beautiful. All right. Beloved brother, Say unto thy soul thus. Speak to your soul. Remember, just like we were reading in the psalm, tell your soul this, he says. Here have I come to the throne of grace to worship God and seek his blessing. And I am not going away till I have done this. I will not rise from my knees because I have spent my customary minutes. I'm not checking it off the list. I haven't come to my 10 minute, 20 minute, one hour, one second, whatever that moment is that we write in our head. I will not rise from my knees because I have spent my customary minutes, but here will I pray till I find the blessing. Brethren, we need waking up. Routine grows upon us. We get into the mill horse way. You, you, you think of this horse who all he does in all of his existence since he was a colt is have a stick tied to one side of him. Maybe they switch it if they're being kind to the animal. And he walks circle after circle spinning this millstone so that it can grind grain or whatever else. And, he's, and that's what he's referring to. Round and round and round the mill. From this may God save us. 
It is deadly. A man may pray 20 years with regularity as far as the time goes and the form goes and never have prayed a single grain of prayer in the whole period. That is my fear. That prayer has just become something we do. I'm supposed to read my Bible, so I read. I'm supposed to pray, so I pray. And we miss the beauty of it that in this moment, and I say it all the time because I believe it all the time, I am talking to the one who spoke everything into being. You are talking to the one who has rescued or desires to rescue your soul from eternal judgment and place it not in some kind of like blank slate where you can give it a next best shot, but he's then said, I'm also going to give you the good deeds of my son so that you can live in paradise forever. That's who I get to talk to every day, any day, whenever I want. You too. One real groan fetched from the heart is worth a million litanies that are pre-written, pre-thought out. One living breath from a gracious soul is worth 10,000 collects or collections of things. May we be kept awake by God's grace. Pray without ceasing. That's what it is to pour out. And so that's why I'm saying it's not a sad thing. I'm going to get to this. Your pouring out is a huge blessing. You don't have to fake it. Do you see this? You don't have to fake anything before God. It's ridiculous for you to think you ever could. You can fake it with me, and you can probably get away with it, all right? You can fake it with your your neighbor. You can probably even fake it with your wife. But you can't fake it with God. And that's not like a, oh, no. That's a, oh, yes. If my prayer is, I am really, really mad at this person, and I hope they stub their toe, and I hope it never gets better. Pray it. Pray it. At the end, you can say, but Lord, your will be done. I think that's always a good thing. I think that kind of keeps us humble. But I don't think, and, and, and the reason I say that is this, I think we've become so inundated with God being in control of all things that we think our emotions don't really matter. God's kind of already got this figured out, right? So I'll pray out of obedience, but I mean, that's really all it is. And so the only time we really pray, and that's why this hits, is when something's going horribly, horribly wrong. And we're like, we fall to our knees. We're like, really? I can't do this. I have to depend on you now. But what I want to free you up in is you can pray about anything at any time. So now let's jump to this word broken. All right? And as Spurgeon kind of points us to being broken before God, everybody flip to Psalms chapter 51. Psalm 51. Remember, I want you to understand that Christ is our assurance And because of our assurance in Christ, we're free to be poured out and broken before God. So I've explained what poured out is, and now I want to explain what brokenness is. Psalms 51. I should have been turning there when you were. All right, drop down to verse 16. I can hear those of you who have the exact same Bible as me. Because I was on the wrong one, tell you, whatever. All right, it's not interesting to y'all, it's just interesting to me. Verse 16 says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Spurgeon's kind of talking about this. It's not just the sacrifice. It's not just tossing some animal out and being like, well, here's my sacrifice. He's saying there's more to it. There's a heart that has to be behind it. So that's why he says in verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice. But check out verse 19. Then you will delight, then will you delight in right sacrifice. Now wait a minute. 
We just went from you don't delight in sacrifice to you will delight in right sacrifice. What made the difference? Verse 17 did. And this is where our brokenness comes in. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Why? Because here's the thing. In the Old Testament, anybody could buy a lamb. If they couldn't buy a lamb, then there was another provision made for them. Anybody could go out and grab it and put it on the altar and say, there it is, I've done my deed, I'm forgiven, now I'm going to go walk in righteousness. It's the same way you and I today, anybody can say, I believe in Jesus. Anybody can walk down an aisle, anybody can pray a prayer. But the point is, if that action, thought, whatever, is all that it is, if there's not a broken heart, if there's not a pouring out of who you really are before God, then can I submit to you that most likely it's not legitimate? Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Why does it say that? Because it's saying when you see what was done on the cross, and when I think of poured and broken, I think of that table. I think of blood that was poured out for me and a body that was broken for me. And, and when I think about that, my response is not, hey, thanks, God, I appreciate it. Sorry, screwed up, my bad. No, no, no. My response is, I want to live this life as a living sacrifice for God. This is where I think people don't understand what it is to be adopted by God. God calls us sons and daughters, right? And we talked about this line and this funny thing in between and how it works out. The fact that God calls you sons and daughters is a very unique thing, right? Because it makes sense here... But it doesn't make sense here. But here's the cool thing. God wrote the book. He wrote the story. We're having assurance in him. And he certainly has assurance in himself. And he says, even though I see what you're struggling in here. Even though I see that you're running away from me here. I know the whole story. And you are my son. You are my daughter. Therefore, I'm going to call you that now. Even when you don't act like it. Because I wrote the book. I wrote the story. And I know how it ends. And when we don't recognize what it is to be a son or a daughter of God, we don't understand our adoption from God, what it tells me is this. If I don't appreciate my adoption, then I don't understand the orphanage I was saved from. This world, dark, hopeless, helpless. And if I don't understand that, if I look at this world, I'm like, this is actually a pretty good place. Right? If I don't look at it in comparison with the kingdom of God... I don't rightly appreciate the orphanage I was saved from. And if I don't rightly appreciate that, I don't feel like I need rescue. And if I don't feel like I need rescue, then I would submit to you that you haven't been. I would submit to you that you weren't rescued. Why be rescued from something you don't need rescue from? And... It, and so here's what we do. We read this, and it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. So we sin. We do something, say something, think something, whatever it is. And we say, you know what? I've got to repent. And I can't just be like, my bad, God. 
But that's basically what we do. Like, yeah, you know, sorry. And it's, it's like a child who's forced to say, I'm sorry. It says I have to be contrite and broken, so God, I'm really broken. I mean, I did this and shucks. I just messed that up. Whoopsie daisy. And that's how we look at our sin. But can I tell you this? It, it, just like the kid would walk up at Ellis Hitstad, tell him you're sorry. Go tell him you're sorry. They go, and what do they say? I'm sorry. He's not, there, there's no broken heart in that, right? You're just doing what you can because you don't want to get a spanking, right? I did it, Dad. You said say sorry. I said sorry. We haven't gotten to that point with Ellis yet. Oh, God, save us from it. But it's coming, and I've already figured out how I'm going to deal with it. You ready? Here's how I'm going to deal with it, and it's a great illustration for ourselves. Back in the Old Testament, this wasn't a problem because if little Jimmy sinned and screwed up, something died, okay? It wasn't, whoops, something died, okay? Now, if you come over to my house and Ellis, and you're hanging out with Ellis, he's going to do a couple of things. He's going to show you something like his favorite toy or his favorite X-Men, and then he's going to take you in his room and he's going to show you his goldfish. He had three goldfish. He has two goldfish. Now, I'm, I'm pretty proud of these two goldfish because they were leftovers from our senior luncheon. I don't know if any of you seniors still have them. I didn't expect my 16-cent goldfish to last two and a half months. Pretty pumped about it. But if you walk in there, Ellis is going to say, let me show you my goldfish. And without fail, here's what he's going to say. This one is Superman. This one is Batman because he's, he's blacker. And Hawkeye died and went in the toilet. That's what he's going to say. I've heard him say it half a dozen times. Why is it that he says it that way? Because the death of that little goldfish mattered to him. Because it still sticks out in his mind. So, if he were to sin, what happens now is I put him on my lap and I say, Son, what you've done is not right. It displeases God. It makes mommy and daddy very sad. It also upsets whoever you sinned against. And because I love you, God has called me to discipline you. I don't want to discipline you, but I want you to be a young man who loves the Lord. And so you need to understand that there are consequences for your sin. And your consequence is going to be a spanking. So, pop, pop, pop. A few tears later, he goes on with his day. Do you know what happens about 15 minutes later? Hopefully not the same thing. All right, we're not, we're not there yet, okay? He doesn't remember it, it hasn't made that lasting of an impact. But if he did that same action and I walked outside and I, I was holding his hand, I said, now Ellis, you know Re, and you know Vera, there are two dogs. Now, because you've sinned, there's a consequence for that sin. I'm going to let you pick. But one of our dogs has to die now. Hey, guess what wouldn't happen 15 minutes later? He wouldn't forget. And so when I'm looking at this, let, let, me, let me say this. One, this should bring us great joy that, praise God, you are born in a, 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 a spiritual era where that is not what we have to do. We should all just, in a, in a moment of silence, say, thank you, God, for that, that I don't have to have that blood on my hands. I don't have to deal with that. Because of what you did on the cross for me. There needs to be this moment of thanks. But I also want you to recognize this. Don't let that grace cause you to be soft towards sin. 
You see what I'm saying there? Don't let the grace of not having to see the blood, don't let the grace of not having to feel the heat and the consequence of your sin cause you to treat sin lightly. Please also don't begin killing your animals. I do not, I do not want to get those phone calls. Well, I can promise you he's not going to hit his brother again. But we've got to run by the shelter next week. So please don't do that. And so what we have is this. God is calling you to be poured out and broken before him. The, the brokenness is not just some little crack. The word means to be smashed, to be mauled, to be destroyed. And so if you can imagine for a minute... If you could hold a, a little clay pot in your hand that represented your soul. It was filled with water. And each of those drops of water made you uniquely you. Your thoughts, your emotions, your attitudes, your dreams, your hopes, your aspirations, your fears, your concerns, your anxieties. All filled up this little clay jar. You can make it glass if you want. All right? Don't make it a turvis tumbler. It's got to break at the end of this illustration. Those things don't break. All right? And you're holding it in your hands. When God is saying, pour yourself out to me, be broken before me, he's not saying, he's not saying we take this little bitty hammer and this little bitty chisel and we go to the lip of the jar and we're like, broken God, whew, it's tough stuff. But isn't that sometimes how we act when, when we're talking to God in prayer? Even if there's nobody listening, even if we're not even praying out loud, we pray and we don't want to say the wrong thing. And, oh, wait, that may not be God's perfect will, so I, I don't know if I can pray that. I, I don't. When what God would say is this, come to my cross, holding that soul, and just let go. Let go in such a way that it falls from a height, that it shatters into so many pieces you can never humpty dumpty it back together. And the water of who you are and your soul and your spirit pours out over the ground in front of my cross in such a way that you can never gather it back up. Because here's the reality, I made the pot, I made the water, I knew you and I know you better than you know yourself, so why would you withhold anything from me? And the illustration's not right that we're carrying this wonderful little thing. Because many times our souls are exceedingly wicked. We're not carrying around always just this bright light that lifts us up. We're carrying around all of our thoughts and all of our desires and all of our stuff. When, when, we, when I used to work at camp, what we would do if there were kids who wouldn't go to sleep or they would disobey, we couldn't spank them. Obviously, it was camp. We'd get thrown in the back of a blue, and that'd be it for us. But what we could do is we could get them to pick up trash. So if they wouldn't sleep, we'd get them up, we'd go in the field, and they'd start picking up trash. And if that wasn't enough, if they were still just, their hearts weren't broken, they were still just cussing and having attitudes, we'd have them hold that trash up. You ever had to do this little exercise where you hold a gallon of milk or something up beside you? That is what we're doing with our soul when we refuse to let go. And for a moment, even now I can feel tension in my arm, but for a moment, especially if you're carrying something with weight, like you're, for a moment you're okay, but then as each moment passes, you begin to feel the pain go up your neck. You begin to feel it in your back. And you see, we go to the cross and we pour a little bit out and we're like, oh, I, I'm so much better off now. But you're still holding the jar. You're still holding the weight of everything inside it. 
And eventually, the very thing that is supposed to set you free is the very thing that is spiritually exhausting you. Sarah Nixon read this in Hebrews. That we wouldn't try to hold our universe together. That we would trust God with that. You don't need to hold your pot together. You don't need to make sure every drop doesn't get spilled. You've got to let go and be broken and poured out. And so here's what I'd like to do in closing. We're going to go pretty quick here. I want to give you some bare bones, raw, honest example from scriptures of ways that people have prayed to God so that you would recognize the joy and freedom and being able to be completely open and bare before God. Not having, like Spurgeon talked about, these litanies and these collects and these little prayers, using it as transitions and sermons or using it to get rid of awkwardness. I want to show you examples of people who have prayed so that it would be an encouragement to you. Now, as we, I'm going to go ahead and tell you the first one so you can turn there. It's Psalms 51. You're probably still there, aren't you? Okay, before I read this, I'm going to jump through three scriptures. Here's the first one. Ephesians 1, 13. It's, they're going to be up behind me. Don't try to flip to these. I'm going to go fast. Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Because of what Christ has done, you are sealed you are held. Your assurance is in Christ. Why am I saying this? Because we have to be able to trust in Christ or we will not be free, to be honest. You cannot let go of yourself unless you're holding on to something else. That is human nature. So what I want to show you is you can hold on to Christ. He's calling you to hold on to him. And it is God's great desire that you would let go of this and hold on to the cross. Here's the next one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Here's the dot. Here's the dot. Here's what you're living right now. He will surely do it. Not you, not your morality, not your best effort. He will surely do it. Let go of yourself. Hold on to the cross. Finally, John chapter 10, 28. Cannot think of a better way to say this. Starting in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, this is Jesus talking, by the way, is greater than all. Why does he put that in there? Why does he say God is greater than all? Why does our psalm say hope in him, trust in him, he's a refuge, a rock, a fortress? Why is it using those words? Because what it's trying to tell you is this. There is nothing strong enough to pry open the fingers of God to pull you out. There is nothing strong enough to pull you away from what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. It ends by saying this. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. That is assurance in Christ. And when you know that your salvation is in Christ and your glory is in Christ and that the in-between is in Christ, it frees you up to say, I'm not perfect. And you know what? That's okay. It's okay that you're not perfect. Because if you were, you wouldn't need Christ to be your perfection. And not only that, let me give you a, a little bit. I'm not giving you license to sin. Well, we'll say I'm not perfect, so I guess I'll just prove it. That's not what I'm saying. But when Paul says, the thing I do, I don't want to do, 
the thing I don't want to do, that's the very thing that I do. It helps us to get in line with that. So while you're not perfect, I'm not giving you license to sin. I'm saying be holy, pursue holiness, but don't fake it. Do do you hear that? Pursue holiness, but don't fake it. You're faking your own holiness, short circuits your actual ability to attain it. So I'm telling you to be honest. Hold on to the cross and let everything else go. Example number one, Psalm 51 that we just read about, about a broken heart. That's not just a how-to on how to sacrifice. It's a psalm of David. And you know what David has just done? A prophet has come to him and said, David, guess what? What you just did was bad. David's like, what are you talking about? He tells him a story and David goes, oh my gosh. I saw this woman bathing and she was pleasing to my eye, lust. So I pursued her. I found out that she had a husband, but I took her anyway. She conceived. And then to cover over that shame, I called her husband back to war to try to deceive him to spend time with her so he would assume that the child was his. He refused to because he was a more honorable man than me and he would not do that while his men were still fighting. So I got him drunk, but he still wouldn't do it. So I sent him back to war and I told the commander, put him in the hardest part of the fighting and then pull everybody back so that he gets killed. That's a rough little run for David. And do you know what he says in response to that? He doesn't say, aw shucks. He doesn't say, oopsie daisy. He recognizes that there are consequences for his sin. And so in Psalm 51, and I'm going to jump a little bit here, but here you go. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. God, have mercy on me. Hear the pouring out of a man's heart. Hear the honesty of it. All right? Hear him being broken before God. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your love, according to your mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my sin. I know my transgression. It's right in front of me. But against you, God, only you have I sinned. I did what was evil in your sight. Drop down to verse 7. Purge me, I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy, let me hear gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Give me a clean heart. Renew my spirit. Don't cast me out of your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore joy to me. Uphold me with a willing spirit. That's honest prayer. And that's legitimate prayer. He goes on and he says, I'm going to spend my days, this is verse 13, teaching transgressors your ways. Deliver me from blood guiltiness of which I, of which I deserve. Here's the next example. I'm sorry, Jeremy, I did that first one. I didn't give you a chance to put it up. Um, uh, The examples are going to be up here. That was the first one. I've screwed up. Help. And that's Psalms 51. The next one is this. Where are you? All of us have probably felt that I've screwed up help prayer. That's a great way to pray it. What about the where are you prayer? Psalm 13. And here's what it says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long are you going to hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul? Where 
are you? How long are you not going to be here? This is a legitimate prayer. It's you, when this is really how you're feeling, saying, God, where are you? I can't find you. I'm praying. I don't hear it. I read it. I don't feel it. Where are you? Verse 3, consider, answer me, God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaking. This is legitimate prayer. He's not just saying, God, where are you? He's saying, because I can't find you, these people think they're right about you. And I'm starting to wonder. He ends it on a positive note, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. I don't hear you and I don't feel you, but your love has been steadfast. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Where are you? Legitimate prayer. Honest, raw, truthful. How about this one? I'm trying not to lose hope. I'm tr- God, right now, I'm trying not to lose hope, but my circumstances are causing me to want to just throw my hands up and say I give up. I'm trying not to, God. I'm trying not to lose hope. 1 Samuel chapter 1. To give you the background, this is, this is a prayer of a woman named Hannah who couldn't have kids. This is pretty common in the Old Testament, but it was even more difficult for her because her husband had another wife who had tons of children. And every time she had an opportunity, that wife would mock Hannah and say, I'm having children, where are yours? And it broke her heart. And she'd been praying, Scripture says, year after year. You think you've been praying a long time for something? This is year after year. To me, this plays out so well for that person you've been praying for in your family to come to faith that still has not. I'm ready to lose hope. I've been praying for years. And I don't, See it. And here is a legitimate prayer. I'm going to start in verse 12, chapter 1. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. That pouring is the exact same pouring that we read about Psalms. You want to hear something else that's really, really cool? This woman pours out her heart to God, and God answers her years after her initial prayer. And she has a son, and his name's Samuel. But the story gets better, because Samuel grows up, and he anoints a young man, David. And that young man, David, writes a psalm that says, pour out your heart to God. Do you see this? The psalm that we read was by the son who was anointed by the son of this woman who years before was pouring out her heart. Check this one out. It's just not fair. How about that? To me, that's a prayer we pray all the time. It could be something as little as, why did I hit every red light on the way to work when this guy who's trying to get the promotion somehow shows up 15 minutes early when he's never early and our boss happens to be here on this day and he's never here on this day. It's just not fair. I'm the one who always does right and he's getting blessed. Jeremiah chapter 12. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. I'm about to complain to you, God. I know you're righteous, but I'm still going to complain. 
Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Question mark to you, God. Why do they prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them. He may be thinking of Psalms 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of mockers or sit in the seat of sinners, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf never withers. Everything he does prospers, not so the wicked. He's saying, I know this. You tell me that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will not, but I'm not seeing it. It's not fair. Why? I love God. Why are my finances not in order? This guy hates you, and he just keeps winning lotteries. I know that's not like exact. I don't know anybody who's won multiple lotteries in your life, but you understand what I'm saying. This is a legitimate prayer. But you, verse 3, Verse 2, you plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. Psalm 51, it's got to have a broken heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, he will not see our latter end. Why is this happening? It's not fair. I'm doing right. I'm going through difficulty. They don't even care about you. Sin all the day long and somehow get blessed. And that is a legitimate prayer. How about this? I am really, really angry. If you're married, you felt this. Okay? You cannot live with another sinner and not get really upset with them at some point. Okay? And what I want to free you up to know is you can pray to God, I've had it. I can't take another minute of this, God. Might not want to pray it out loud. Okay? That's kind of a you and God thing. All right? That may not be the best out loud prayer. But that's a legitimate thing to pray. This blows my mind. Here you go. Psalm 109. You want to talk about somebody being broken and honest and poured out before God? David was basically falsely accused of something. Here is how he deals with it. Verse 6 in Psalm 109. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Here's a tough one. Let his prayer be counted as sin. When he prays, count that thing as sin. That's pretty angry. It gets worse. May his days be few. You ever prayed for the death of a person? May somebody else take his office. Ready? I have never prayed this. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Gets better. May his children wander about and beg seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. Take away their dad, make them poor, make them wander, ruin their house, and make them find no food when they go. I have, I've been upset at people, okay? I have never been so upset that I was like, what was the name of their kid? Because that's when I, I just want to pray destruction on that guy. But this is legitimate prayer. Why? Because he's not dipping little people. God, this is a difficulty. Help me. He's not doing that. He's saying, here's the deal. Here is how I feel. And I can tell you this because my assurance is in Christ. And it sure is not in my own perfection. 
May the creditor, verse 11, seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. I challenge you to pray that this week. (laughs) I don't. But my point is, when we look at the full span of human emotion, doesn't this give you freedom to be honest with God? Do you see what I'm saying here? We looked at the word poor and broken, and it's like, oh, that's tough. But don't you want to pray this anyway, and you just head yourself back? I'm telling you, it's okay. It's okay to pray this way. Not all the time out loud, okay? You, you need to understand, there's wisdom in this. And then this is my last one. Is there any other way? Luke chapter 22. Is there any other way? God, I see what's before me. Is there any other way? And I would submit to you, is there any better example of being honest in prayer than this? Luke chapter 22, verse 40. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. You see, even the prayers of Christ were not only, God, your will be done. Amen. God, your will be done. Amen. Jesus said, I don't want this. I don't want to feel the nail go through my hand. I don't want to feel the nail go through my feet. I don't want the thorns smashed upon my head. I don't want to be flogged. I don't want to be beaten. That's legitimate prayer. But he ends it as I think we should end all our prayer. But God, not my will Yours be done. If you want me to be perplexed, your will be done. If you want me to go through this period of anger, your will be done. If you want me to be in this time of absolute joy, your will be done. If there's no other way, your will be done. But it doesn't circumvent our honesty and openness to God. Christ is our perfection. We're imperfect. We don't come to God with our perfect little jar. But because of Christ, we can, and I underline this, confidently tell God anything and everything in prayer. Because of Christ, you can tell God with confidence anything and everything in prayer. Let me close with this scripture. And then I'll pray. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest. Who has passed through the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Since Christ has come. And I can look week after week at the poured blood and the broken body. Since he has come, let me hold fast to my confession. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
The other reason it doesn't make sense for you to fake it is he lived it. Those emotions that you feel that you want to hedge back, he lived. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let us then, because of Christ who has come, who is our assurance, let us then with confidence step before the throne of God and say, God, here is where I am. Here is who I am. Here is how I feel. Here is my absolute broken, raw, truthful honesty shattered at the foot of the cross holding nothing back. Because I have freedom in Christ to say that. And I will find help for my soul. Let's pray. Father, everything, everything tethers on our assurance in you. Everything tethers on our assurance with you. But praise be to God that you didn't just purchase us salvation. And you didn't just promise us glory. But in between the two, you have called us sons and daughters of the Most High God. That you sealed us with your Holy Spirit. That you have held us and no one will pluck us out of your hand. Father, I pray that that would give us joy. We wouldn't get licensed to sin. But rather, Father, we would pursue holiness without faking it. And Father, that in recognizing that, that we have absolute freedom to be poured out and broken before you. And it's not a sad thing. It's not a heavy thing. It's just a true thing. It's just an honest thing. It's just us saying, God, here's exactly where I am. Now, where are you? What is your will? I'm leaning on you. I'm trusting on you. Here's where I am. Now, would you show me mercy for my soul? Would you meet me where I am in this moment as you met me where I was at your cross? So, Father, I, I just thank you. Thank you for the goodness of the sacrifice in Christ. We don't have to do sacrifice after sacrifice. Father, you have given us great grace in that. But for those in this room, who don't know the broken body of a Savior and the poured blood of the God who loved them, I pray that their eyes would look up, that they wouldn't trust on themselves. They wouldn't hold anything back in their jar. But Father, that they would simply let go and that they would come to you for the redemption of their soul. And for those of us who are walking in this, give us joy. Give us joy that in our imperfection, you are our perfection. And that you greatly desire as a father leaning in to hear his child speak, want to know what's in our hearts and in our minds. You know it, but you want to hear us say it. So Father, cause us to be a people who pray. And who pray honestly. Who don't fake it. But who see this as an amazing opportunity amazing gift purchased by the blood of our Savior to speak with the Most High God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Creator of all the universe. It's in His name I pray. Amen.